Good morning, Zoe. Boop. That's just a little mechanism I use to not take myself so seriously. <laughs> if you're like me, uh, we've been doing a lot with Zoom calls and production and all the kind of stuff. And, you know, when you stand in front of a camera, there's the pressure to be what you're supposed to be instead of being what you are. So if you see me do this, boop, that's just me trying to just not take myself so seriously, chill a little bit, and I actually encourage you to do the same thing. Uh, this past year, 2020, has, has everyone uptight for a lot of reasons. And God just wants us to be ourselves with him. And, and, and crisis moments really force us to be things we think we're supposed to be instead of just being comfortable with what God has called us to be. So I just wanted to say that. We are going to continue our series this morning on Ephesians. We've been looking at it from Ephesians 1, and now we're in the middle of Ephesians chapter 5, and we're going to continue with that. So I'm excited about this series because I think I mean, God continues to speak to us. He, Paul wrote this letter centuries ago, and it still speaks to us today. So we're gonna, I'm going to remind you of our title, right? So last week we continued our series on Paul's letter to Ephesians. And we will continue with the second half of Ephesians today in a series titled, Don't Trip, a Crip Walk Tutorial, part three, all right? So for our purposes, Crip stands for Christ Revealed in Prayer, okay? Christ Revealed in Prayer. The first thing Paul tells us in that first letter is he's praying for us. And he says, I don't cease to give thanks for you, remembering you in our prayers. And his prayer is that we see Jesus clearly. And if the apostle is praying for us, how much more should we be praying for ourselves, seeking God so that we see Jesus clearly? Because it's only by seeing Jesus clearly that we can ever truly live the way God has called us to live. We've been talking about the fact that many people, they get introduced to Christianity and they think the first thing they need, they need to do is change their behavior. Well, you're a Christian now. You got to stop doing this. You got to start doing that. You got to stop doing this. You got to start doing that. But they don't realize that really the first thing they must do is to identify with Jesus. Now, <clears throat> I... Last week, I used an analogy. I talked about acting. And this was inspired by a YouTube video I saw by Will Smith, and he was tutoring somebody on acting. And the way he described it, it was a little bit counterintuitive if you're not familiar with acting. And he said, of course, acting means actions. There's actions you take. But, you know, the, the, the idea, he says, that most people have who don't understand acting, he said, is that they try to simply imitate you know, the actions of somebody who's angry or sad. And he said it went, it went deeper than that. He was saying that you actually have to really identify with the character and have some real sense of that anger or that sadness. And I think the same thing applies to us as Christians. Now, today we actually have to have in our midst 
an actress, and you just heard her sing, and I, I know if, you, if you, that was the first time you heard her, you know that that's a voice that, be, that belongs not just on Broadway, but in, but in Hollywood, and it's been my pleasure to see her perform, uh, uh, certainly in the United States, but she's traveled all around the world singing and acting, and I just asked her since she was here to say a few things about her acting process, and then I'm going to talk about how we can learn from that and apply it to how we behave as a Christian. So I'm going to invite Debrian to, to come up. And she's going to just say a little bit about her process, and we're going to, she's going to educate us on that. And even though you may not be an actor, but we'll be able to get some lessons from this. So, Debrion, tell us a little bit about your process. And I don't know if what I said resonates with you or not, but tell us about your experience as an actress and how that kind of may help us understand Christianity. Well, as an actress, part of what is necessary for you to actually connect to a character is it's not about necessarily trying to be something or acting, so to speak. It's finding the connection within yourself. So for myself, like, for example, um, one of the things that I remember when I was actually in in college, in graduate school for acting, one of the things that um, one of my professors had said was, you don't have to be a drug addict to be able to perform a role as a drug addict. You don't have to shoot up. You don't have to do any of those things that, unfortunately, many actors who feel like they need to be in the method, so to speak, need to do. You don't have to do that. You can find something that you connect with in the same way that an addict connects with that causes them to participate and to do what they do in that addiction. And so one of the things that she was saying was that as each of us were in her class, she said, you need to find what is that for you? What is it for you that has you, quote unquote, Jonesen? <laughs> you know, what is it that you can connect with with that? Is it food? Is it reading? Is it playing a game? Is it spending time with a certain person? Is it a person? Is it a person that you could be, quote unquote, addicted to and not a substance? And so it's so interesting that you were saying being able to connect acting with God and to be able to say, Lord, I want my Jones to be for you. So what it is that that I'm tapping into is the hunger and the thirst that I have for God and for his presence, that I want to be in it, that it's when I wake up in the morning, that's the first thing I want is I want to be with him. So in the same way that that's how I'm feeling, I can tap into that and I can use that for that role, so to speak. I don't have to get the actual drugs themselves into my system, but I can tap into my desire and my hunger and my thirst for the Lord and for his presence in the same way that an addict fiends for that drug. That's so good. Yeah. Oh, thank you so much. I got so many lessons. I don't know what you got, but I got so many lessons. I'm going to explain. Thank you so much. You Appreciate welcome. you. Thank you so much. That, so, so first of all, the, the first thing I got from that, she was talking about in her acting class how the acting teacher was saying, look, you don't have to be a drug addict to act like one. You don't have to be a, a successful business person to act like a successful business person. And what I got from that is there are people who are, they're spiritually hungry, but they come to church and they see people who, from their minds, are acting spiritual. And they said, I can't, I'm not them. I, I don't have a life 
like them. I don't, like, I'm not, I don't have their background. I don't, I don't feel the same way they do. How in the world could I live that way? And you're looking at people at church as your point of reference instead of looking at Jesus and how that you personally can connect with him. It's our personal connection with Jesus that makes it possible for us to act like him. Not trying to imitate people we see, because first of all, we don't see everything people are doing. They may look, especially on Sunday, we tend, we tend to try to come in a way that lets people think or believe that we have things all together. So first of all, that's not even the whole truth. But what we really want is a personal connection with the Jesus of Scripture. And though he was a real historical figure who lived, he died, but he still lives. And through the Holy Spirit, we can have a personal connection with him. And as we identify him, that's when we begin to behave the way he wants us to behave. I love the example that Debrion shared because it, it basically it says that people who don't think they can act, they, some of them actually can if they tap into that personal connection. And there are those of you who are listening today and you think, I can't be a Christian, or at least I can't act the way the Bible says Christians have to act. That's not true, because you can have a personal connection with Jesus that will empower you to live uprightly. Even the folks who look like they have it together, they can't live righteously in their own power. They need a personal connection with Jesus. And that's some people's problem. They're trying to live in their own strength, and they're breaking down because they think the pressure is all on them to live uprightly, and they're forgetting their personal connection with Jesus. Let's continue. Now, in the letter to Ephesians, there were three metaphors we talked about. We talked about the metaphor for sitting. We went over that, and then we talked about the metaphor for walking, and then we talked about the metaphor for standing, which we'll talk about next week. But right now, we're still focused on that walk, right? The lesson is about how drawing close to Jesus affects our walk. In Ephesians and much of the rest of the Bible, walking is a metaphor for life. Your walk refers to how you live. The first three chapters focus on, the first three chapters of Ephesians focus on what we believe but the second three chapters focus on how we behave. And again, that's the connection I want to make. That identification comes first. That personal connection comes first. Uh, certainly, the, there, think, there are commandments that, we have to, uh, that God commands us to, to do and to act out. But if we try to do that without actually connecting with that, just like anybody else, when you watch a movie, you can identify bad acting when people are just kind of going through the motions and there's no real connection with the character. They just look like somebody who's just trying to act it out, but not somebody who is really there and you, it makes you feel like they're actually experiencing it. People know the difference. And guess what? God knows the difference. It's our personal identification, then the behavior. So a key principle from last week, and then we're going to continue here, is we Here's the thing. Here's the thing that Ephesians is telling us. We choose how we identify and how we behave. Okay? Really, really important. We choose how we identify and how we behave. I'm going to say it again. We choose how we identify and how we behave. And 
the example we used last week, certainly we're in a time when it certainly, if there's any lesson from our modern concepts of, of, the, of sexuality that we are, are in the 21st century, this is very uh, popular today, right? It, it's the idea that you make choices about how you identify. You can identify with how you feel. You can identify uh, in a way that doesn't, is not consistent with how you feel. We talked about race. We talked about gender. We talked about politics, that people choose how they identify. You may be a person, we used the example last week, of a person who is, who is their, their DNA is African-American, but they may not choose to identify that way. They may just say, hey, I'm just an American, or, or, or I'm just a person, right? And you have other people, we talked about people who are of mixed race, and some people decide to pick a particular aspect of their ancestry to, for which to identify. Some people choose to acknowledge all of them, and it just depends. You know, we, we get those census forms that we have to fill out, and people make choices about how they choose to identify. We also choose how we behave. And here's the thing. Because these are our choices, God holds us accountable for how we identify and how we behave, check this out, not on how we feel on the inside. How you feel on the inside is a completely separate matter about which God is incredibly empathetic. He understands the dynamics of your internal reality. That's not where he's judging you. He's looking at how do you identify and how do you behave? And lesson one in identification, identify with Jesus. Identify with Jesus. That is his, that is his first priority for us to identify with Jesus. And what do we see about Jesus? Jesus was obedient to the Father to the death. To the death. Now, oh yeah, that's Jesus. Yeah, but guess what? Whenever Jesus says, not my will, but your will be done, you know what that tells us? Jesus had his own will. Jesus had a human will. He had another way to do the same thing the Father wanted him to do. But every time he was faced with that temptation, he says, Lord, not my will, your will be done. I'm going to identify with the will of my Father. We see it came to a head in the Garden of Gethsemane. After all that Jesus went through, he was finally there. It was just moments before he was about to be crucified, and he was like, I can't do it. Father, if there's any way, if there's another way to do this, please, let's do it that way. I don't want to drink this cup. I don't want to go through this. I don't feel like doing this. These people don't appreciate me. My apostles still haven't gotten. My three closest apostles, they sleep. But then he said, but, but Jesus could have the opportunity to choose, not my will, but your will be done. So he acted like someone who was obedient, even though he didn't feel like being obedient. He identified with the will of the Father, even though his own will was pressing him to not go through with the crucifixion. And what is that for us? That is an example for us because even though we may not go to a physical cross, Jesus says we carry our crosses because daily we are crucifying the flesh. And we saw in previous lessons when we looked at Ephesians, we saw that the, the passions of the flesh are expressed in the desires of the body and the mind. 
the desires of the body and the mind. And we talked last week about the fact that in ancient times, the mind wasn't the brain, the mind was the heart. And here's the thing, our bodies and our minds are not reliable sources for truth or identity. How do we know that? I'm going to quote a scripture. It's not in your notes. But Jeremiah 17, 9, it says this. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? The heart, it says, is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? You know what that says? Our hearts are not reliable. Not unless God changes it. <laughs> not unless we fill it with the Word of God, right? But, but this is why the, the whole idea, and I, and I love it, you know, it's, it's, you know, Disney, you know, follow your heart. It's inspiring, you know, Jiminy Cricket, when I wish upon a star, follow your heart. It sounds good, but it's not good because our hearts are not to be trusted if they have not been changed by Jesus. Our hearts are not to be trusted if they have not been changed by Jesus because what happens is when we leave the influence of the Holy Spirit, we are influenced by three things. We went over this already, but I'll review, right? Three things. We are under the influence of the deception of the world, the manipulation of the devil, and the demands of the flesh. We have three bosses. The world, the devil, and the flesh. We're not independent. See, we, when, we, when we rebel and we move away from God's commands, we think we're being independent. We think we have our own, own ideas. No, we don't. We are being influenced by three different slave masters. It's so funny. You see people today who talk about they're doing their own thing, and yet they're a consumer. <laughs> you, know, you know, think about the last 100 purchases you made. You probably think you made, you probably, you probably think you bought that hamburger because you were hungry. You, you, you probably bought, you thought, probably think you bought those shoes because they were cute. You, you, you think you bought that phone because it was at a, at a good price. No, those advertisers have been working on you for years. So that the minute you see a Big Mac, you start getting hungry, even if you just ate. Because they've been working on you. Google and Apple, and I got it. They, entrepreneurs, business people, they're doing their thing. But this idea that somehow you're free and independent, no, there's stuff working on you and are stirring up the passions of your flesh to do things that go against the way Jesus wants us to live. But what we have to do is continue to identify with Jesus. Jesus was faced with the same temptations, it tells us in Hebrews, that he's not a high priest who has not been touched by the feelings of our infirmities. He too was tempted, but every time he's the perfect example, I will identify with my Father's will, and I will do my Father's will. Let's expound on that. Now, normally, I will, what I've been doing is reading the passages longhand uh, before I kind of break them down in particular, but I'm not going to do that today for the sake of time because I've got two more Sundays to get through Ephesians. So we're going to just get into Ephesians 4, 25 through 32. And, well, I guess maybe I will just read them because I have some things I'm going to say in some today. I'm going to read Ephesians 4, 25 through, 20, through 32, and then Ephesians 5, 1 through 5, and then I'm going to make some overall statements about what's going on here. So here we go, Ephesians 4 and 25. It says this, Therefore, having put away falsehood, 
Let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. It continues. Ephesians 5, 1 through 5, it says, Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality, but sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as it is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. Verse 5, and then we'll end it here. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So here Paul is getting incredibly specific. He's saying, look, this is how Christians should behave. And the analogy we use is we talked about the royal family in England, right? Because in the first three chapters of Ephesians, it talks about that we've been adopted into the royal family. And then Paul tells us at the beginning of Ephesians 4, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And these days, a lot of people have been paying attention to the royal family, right? Because of the dynamics and the controversies that have been going on. And it's been clear to everybody, if you're a royal, you just can't act in any certain kind of way. You literally have to walk a certain kind of way. You have to talk a certain kind of way. You have to sit a certain kind of way. You got to have dinner a certain kind of way. When you greet somebody, you can't just greet them any kind of casual way. There's a certain way when people see you, they have to, you know, courtesy, bow, all those other kind of things. There are strict rules for how you live if you are part of the royal family. We've got to act like our father, the king. Just like the, the children in the, in the royal family have to follow suit with the, with the queen. And we saw the two members of the family, and we know what happened there. There's some controversy and racial dynamics and all that kind of stuff. We understand what that is in the natural, but I'm using that as an, as an analogy that when you decide, I don't want to do all that, you don't get to take the family name with you. Right? They don't, get to, they don't get to come to America and have all the benefits and privileges of being in the royal family when they're not acting like a royal. And this is what Paul is saying. He said, I've adopted you. And in ancient Rome, when you were adopted, it was, you were adopted for this reason, because the paterfamilias, or that was the Latin term used, the, the male head of the family would adopt you because he wanted an heir. And this thing, all these things I've created, I've given to you, and I've adopted you into my family. But what that means is you got to give up your old family. Back in those times, you had to renounce their, your connection to them. There was a whole ritual, legally and culturally, where you were no longer what that was. You are now in this family. And as a member of this family, you get the inheritance, but you got to act that way. 
also in some. To crip walk, Christ revealed in prayer, right? To crip walk is to follow the principles of the Ten Commandments. What we just read was basically the Ten Commandments. And I, if you have your notes, I may not go through all the details, but I created a chart that aligns verses in Ephesians with one of the Ten Commandments. And that's basically, basically what it's saying. Now listen, some people get caught up in the precise wording of the Ten Commandments. What you want to look at is the principle of the Ten Commandments, not necessarily the, pro- the precise words. So I will give you an example. So for example, right? You shall have no other gods before me. There's a couple of places where we see that linked. Ephesians 4.30, it says, and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. Or more specifically, Ephesians 5.5, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who, who is covetous, that is an idolater. Coveting is idolatry, right? You may not have an actual physical idol of some god, but you may desire something badly that someone else has to the extent that you're jealous or to the extent that you want to badmouth them or to the extent that you want to make them look bad. God calls that idolatry. We see the same thing with the second commandment. You shall not make for yourself an idol nor bow down to it or worship it. But let's go to the next one. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, right? Ephesians 4, 29. Let no corrupt talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. What else does it say? Ephesians 5, 4. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. You know, I, I, I struggle sometimes because, ooh, there's some comedians I really, really like. And, I'm, you know, I'm not so holy that I can't listen to comedians and all those other kind of things. That's, that's the reality. But, but sometimes people go places, and I, I, I ooh, I, I just, it's, 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 in the, it's, in, it's not in the spirit of, it's not in a Christian spirit. It's not in a Christian spirit, the way people go. Now, sometimes professional comedians can make it work because they're professionals, but sometimes when we do it casually with people we know, that's not the spirit in which God wants us to communicate. Filthiness or foolish talk, the way we talk with one another. And definitely we shouldn't desecrate God's name. Some people just use God's name in vain. That is, they don't mean it in a holy way. They're not calling upon him. They're not appealing to him. It's almost like they're cursing. So in a moment of frustration, they say, oh, God, oh, God. It is less about the words and more about the spirit in which we talk about his name. We want to be reverential about who God is. Why? We're royals. The scripture says we're seated in heavenly places with the favored son. And basically Ephesians says, look, you have the status of the favored son. It's like any of us sitting here who aren't one of the royals. And Queen Elizabeth calls us up and says, I want you to sit with my son Charles. What he has, you have. That's the status we have. And God says, okay, now act like it. Act like it. What does it say? You shall remember and keep the Sabbath day holy. That's the way I get there is Ephesians 2 and 6. It's, a, it's, a, it's, it's the principle here. Ephesians 2 and 6 says this, And raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. What does seating signify? Rest. It's already done. 
Now, we don't come from a tradition where we prescribe a Sabbath for everybody, but I do believe that the Sabbath is a biblical principle. I take a Sabbath once a week on Fridays, and I, 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 I go through great lengths to do nothing, to do absolutely nothing. I, I'm a musician, and I like to practice, and, and I will practice six days a week, but I leave one day to say, God, it's by your grace that I can even play this instrument. I'm going to trust you to perfect my skill. Now, that's not something everybody has to do. That's just, me, that's just me honoring God. I do that with other kinds of things. And that's just say, God, it's already done. I don't have to work to make it happen. It is your grace, and I'm going to sit here and rest. What else do we see with the Ten Commandments? It says, you, shall, you must not commit murder. Where do we see that? Ephesians 4, 26. Be angry and do not sin, and do not let the sun go down on your anger. Ephesians 4, 31. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Well, what does that mean? Well, Jesus clarifies this for us when he's speaking in the New Testament, in the Gospels. Basically, uh, uh, anger is the spirit of murder. He teaches that uh, with the Sermon on the Mount. He says, look, yeah, you, you, it's not just like if you actually kill somebody. It's assassinating somebody with your words. It, it, it's wanting bad things to happen to them. It's being angry with them and imagining disaster happening to them. That's just as bad as killing them in God's eyes. We don't act that way. Why? We're royals. We're royals. I can go on and on. It talks about, you know, uh, you, you must not steal. talks about that explicitly. You must not give false evidence against your neighbor. talks about lying. You must not be envious of your neighbor's goods. Uh, and certainly you must not commit adultery. It talks about that. talks about sexual immorality. So essentially, it is the Ten Commandments. But if you see them merely as rules that you have to try to act like, you guys see all these people around you on Sunday and you think you have to act like them, it'll never happen. It doesn't begin with the behavior. It begins with the identification. Do you have a personal connection with the Jesus of Scripture? Not the Jesus that people gossip about or the Jesus we imagine or the Jesus we read in some other books. The Scripture is the authority on the person of Jesus. Have you had an encounter with him? I'm not talking about an encounter with a church service or an encounter with spiritual people. Some of you have grown up, some of us have grown up in Christian families, but you've never actually had an encounter with Jesus. If you look at Scripture and see when Jesus had encounters with people like Zacchaeus, he was a thief. He was a tax collector. And people hated tax collectors back in Bible days. Why? Because first of all, they were Jewish folks who worked for the Roman government. The Romans were the oppressors who colonized the Jews. And tax collectors were Jewish folks who worked for the Roman government, and they would cheat their own people. So they would go and collect taxes and then collect a little bit more. And if you didn't give them a little bit more, they'd get a Roman soldier to thrash you. And so Zacchaeus was going all around cheating people until he met Jesus. Until he had an encounter with Jesus. And after Jesus, he met Jesus and says, I'm paying everybody back and then some. What would motivate a man like that to change his behavior? Jesus. 
hearing sermons about him, not just reading about him, but encountering him personally. And let me tell you, you can have that right in your apartment, right in your, your house, right in, I don't know, maybe you're listening right now on, on, on your phone and walking around. Right where you're walking, you can have an encounter with Jesus. But I don't understand, and I don't, I, I don't know how I would live that. I don't feel like I can be a person like that. That's you thinking about you and not thinking about the power that Jesus offers. Did he not go to the Samaritan woman? She was on her sixth husband. She, she, she had all kind of troubles with, with men. But the minute she found Jesus, she became an evangelist. Quit telling Jesus what he can't change. If he can change your heart, he can change you. Let's continue here. Uh, we're going to look, specific. I'm going to look at Ephesians 5, 5 here. Specifically, it says, for you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. I want to talk about this a little bit because this subject gets into some touchy areas. And so most of you probably already know what I'm talking about. There is a tension. There is a significant tension between the church, particularly the evangelical church, and the LGBTQ community. And that, that tension rests in a lot of different areas, but some of it is upon scriptures like this, that in a plain reading are simply calling out behavior, sexual immorality, greed, thievery, all those other kind of things. I want to talk about this. Because you may sit here today and say, I don't understand how this can be reconciled because this is how I feel, this is how I believe, this is, this is how I am, and this is how the evangelical church believes, and I, don't under, I, I just don't see it. Well, give me a chance to talk to you. My job as a Bible teacher is simply to expound on the Scripture. That's my job. And I've said it before, when you go to the doctor, they want to be as compassionate with you as possible, but their, their job is not to say things that make you feel good. Their job is to tell you the truth about your condition based upon their analysis of your situation. And they may not even want to tell you that you have a debilitating disease, but if they don't, they will be sued for malpractice. So my responsibility here is as a Bible teacher to expound on the Scripture in the light that I have. but give me a chance, okay? Give me a chance. All right, so, so, so I want to I break down one particular scripture here that certainly gets people upset and gets people divided, okay? So 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11, it says something similar to Ephesians 5 and 5. It says this. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexual immoral nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor swindlers. Revelers are people who are abusive with their words. Swindlers are people like con, con artists, okay? That's what swindlers are. Will inherit the kingdom of God. Verse 11 says, And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. 
So the first, now, when people read this passage, their eyes probably go first today to those who pra- men who practice homosexuality, right? And the first thing is they ignore the fact that God is calling out a bunch of people. Like, there is nobody I'm talking to who hasn't done something on this list. Greedy, abusive with words, drunk, swindlers, con artists. This is anybody who is acting, who's not acting like a royal, are, are, are separated from the inheritance they have in the kingdom. It is not isolating particular people. Now, with that said, there are certainly conversations people have about like the Greek and what that really means. It doesn't really apply as widely as you say it is. I'm not going to get into that right now. I'm just going to talk about some basic principles. But the first thing what I want to say is that it's not isolating any particular individual. In other words, if you are a human, you're on this list. The reality is, and Ephesians tells us that we are all born with the sin nature, and Ephesians tells us that it attracts the wrath of God. We're all born that way. The reality is, is that it's simply expressed differently in different people for different reasons, but God judges it the same way. Now, certainly, there, you might have a different experience personally in, in the experience of one thing or another, but that's just simply personal experience. When it comes to the judgment of God, he considers, he considers it all beneath you as a royal. Now, What does this mean? Does this mean we've lost our salvation because we do these things? I'm going to quote something from uh, Pastor Jack Hayford that I think really helps us to understand this. He says this, and I'm quoting him. He says, The Apostle Paul, in writing here about the unrighteous, is addressing a body of believers living in a city known for its gross sexual immorality. He lists a catalog of sins characterizing sexual impurity and says that those who commit them will be disinherited from the kingdom. Does this mean that people who engage in sexual sin will lose their salvation? No. Rather, what the Word of God is saying is that sex sins obliterate the confidence, authority, and power and blessings of the kingdom. Sex sins tend to dull our souls to the God-given joy of our salvation, robbing us of the strength that joy is designed to sustain. The Bible says this in Corinthians. Sexual sins are different than others, but not because it's harder for God to forgive them. It's because our bodies weren't designed to do it. And the scripture says that sexual sins are the only sins that where we sin against our very own bodies. When God gives us commandments, he's trying to protect us from ourselves. From ourselves. As we talked about for the last couple of weeks, the scripture says there's a way that seems right. It seems right because it has felt benefits, perceived benefits. That is a short-term perspective. The Scripture says that our bodies were designed to worship God. Now, you may not see yourself as a worshiper, maybe because of what you did last night. 
maybe what you've been doing for the past month or for the past year. But going back to 1 Corinthians 6, he says, but guess what? If you have come to Jesus, he says, but such were some of you, but you were washed. You were sanctified and you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So they, you may even still be involved in some of the behavior, but he says, look, you're in a new family now. What God is saying is this, identify with me. We'll get to the behavior. We'll get to that. We'll get to that. Look at me. That's, that's what he saw, told Peter. Peter was trying to walk on the water, and he saw himself sinking. And Jesus was like, hey, 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 look at me. Look at me. Some of you have started the Christian faith and found yourself doing things that are inconsistent with Scripture, and you're wondering, you may feel guilty, and you may feel you can't be a part of the Christian community. Jesus is saying, hey, 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 look at me. Look at me. Look at me. That's our focus. The actions will come. In church, we have to be patient with people. Because we don't know, in our eyes, it may look like they still doing such and such, and they dare come to church, and they doing this and this and that. You know what? They're, they are crying out to Jesus. And they are pressing into him. And let me tell you about th those of you who are out there and saying, I don't know. I mean, I'm hearing what you're saying, Doc. But I don't want to come to your church because I know what people are going to do. Let me tell you about that. You're right. There's some folks who aren't ready for you. Get it. Understand it. But it's a two-way street, right? See, some people looking for the perfect church while they get to be imperfect. They, they want the church to extend grace to them. Give me a chance. Let me figure this out. I'm telling you the same thing. Give us a chance. Let us figure this out. We're not going to be perfect. You're not going to be perfect. Let's trust God together. Do, doesn't it depend on Jesus anyway? Doesn't it depend on grace anyway? Doesn't it depend on the power of the Holy Spirit anyway? Let's trust God. God together. But you've got to be willing, and we've got to be willing to take that first step. As a church, we have to be willing to say, hey, this is different. What you doing, I, I don't normally see people at our church doing that kind of thing. we got to trust God that it is him who has the power to change people, not us. And as you come to our church, you got to say, I don't know how they're going to receive me, but I trust Jesus, though. And some people are going to look at me a certain way, you know, but I'm, Jesus, I'm, I'm, I'm going to stay looking. I'm going to look at you. I'm going to look at you the whole time. I'm going to look at you the whole time. I'm not going to read in the entirety Ephesians 5, 6 through 14 and Ephesians 5, 15 through 20. I'm going to try to summarize some of the key points here, right, for the sake of time. So, if I look at Ephesians 5, 6 through 14, its main idea is this. Like, don't partake, don't, do, don't, don't partner with the world in doing what they do. That's not you. That's not you. 
Okay, don't you, you see people doing things and, and they seem fine with it. That seems to be the thing to do. God is saying, don't do that. that. That's not you anymore. I know it seems easy to do. I know they're making it look fun. I know they're making it look prosperous. He's saying, don't do that. So what does that mean? Identification, I'm repeating myself, but identification is everything. When you stop identifying with the world, you'll stop acting like the world. But because you still see yourself as one of them, you still act like they do. So change that identification. The other main idea from that passage is this, that, you know, he says, he asks us to imitate him, right? We have to act like children of God. It talks about acting like children of the light. I know I feel that way about my kids. They better represent me. They spend a night at somebody's house or they're going somewhere. They better act like a smith. <laughs> You're not a Jones. You a smith. You better represent our family. And God is saying the same thing. You, 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 you a child of your father. You a child of light. Be the light. And then the other main idea from that passage is that, you know, God talks about us being light and exposing darkness. So what does that mean? That God uses us as flashlights. And I know I've experienced this. I, sometimes I've gone in places trying to be so inconspicuous, like I'm not saying a word about, you know, I'm, I'm in this space. I'm not going to try to evangelize or anything like that. And I can't hide it, even trying to hide it. Just doing my thing, doing my job. People say, are you a preacher? I, it, what church do you go to? Oh, I, I, oh, I just cursed it. Are you okay? I mean, did I offend you? I'm like, I'm, I'm not even thinking about you. And, and I've been in places where I, I've, been in, I've, I've been invited to parties. You know, I, my friend had a party not too long ago, and they were, you know, doing their thing, and he, he had his 40th, and I was there to support him, but I couldn't, I didn't participate in everything they had going. I was just there to support my friend, and they just, I was just sitting down, and people, I, it was like I was a priest, and they was having confession. The music was going, and they were saying, I know, but I didn't mean to do it, and da-da-da-da-da-da, and it's the reason why I did this, and da-da-da-da. I'm like, okay. Just living the way God wants you to live, he uses you as a flashlight to expose darkness, to call people out. No, to call them to him to call them to repentance. He will use your life to draw other people to Christ and will create conversations so you can talk about the Jesus you have a personal relationship with. And you can tell them what I'm telling you. Because they're going to think they got to change everything tomorrow. No, they just got to have, they have, a, have, to have to have a personal connection with Jesus. And then Jesus does the work day by day. Every day, I draw closer to him. Even if it's just an inch, even if it's just a half an inch, I'm drawing closer. I'm going to do something where I see Jesus clearly. And that's what Paul was praying when he was saying, I was remembering you in my prayers. Every day he was on his knees. Lord, open the eyes of their understanding so that they can see. We're almost done here. I'm going to summarize Ephesians 5, 15 through 20. Picking my spots because I'm trying to get through the whole letter here, okay? So, Ephesians 5, 15 through 20, it talks about the Holy Ghost. Let me just say that, okay? I'm going to read the first of uh, uh, some of the passages here to, so, since we have a little bit of time here. Okay, it says, it says this, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise but as wise, 
making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Let me break down verse 16 really quickly. When it says making the best use of the time, think opportunity, right? It's saying the days are so evil. When you have a chance to do good, take advantage of it, right? And again, the example of on your job or in a context where Everyone doesn't necessarily believe as you believe, and you're limited as to how much you can express the Jesus in you in terms of exquisite ways. But when you have an opportunity, live righteously. Why? Because God uses it as a flashlight to expose darkness, not to shame people, but to say, hey, I see you, but I see you. You are my prodigal child. Come back to me. I love you. You are also part of the royal family. You also can sit in heavenly places with Jesus. Right? So, verse 18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. Now, let me talk a bit about this. So, Ephesians 5, 15 through 20 is saying this. First of all, examine your behavior. Okay, it says look carefully how you walk, examine your behavior. Number two, take advantage of the opportunity to act morally. Acting right is an opportunity. Do you know why? Because we can't do it in our own strength. So every time you live uprightly, don't think of it as, oh, this thing I have to do. It's something you get to do because your human nature doesn't have the capacity to live right. And so every time you can walk holy, every time you can follow the Ten Commandments, thank the Lord Jesus Christ for giving you the grace to be honest, the grace to stay faithful to your spouse, the grace to to, to not covet, the grace to worship God. It requires grace to do that. Verse 18, it says, And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know what that means in some? Stay under the influence of the Holy Spirit. Stay under the influence. Some people stay under the influence in other ways. Drunk, weed. Just because it's legal doesn't mean you got to do it. The Bible basically is saying there's a better, we was talking about it, Debriot already said it, there's a better drug than weed. There's a better drunkenness than alcohol. It's the Holy Spirit. But when you're drunk in the Spirit, you're not crazy, you're sober. Now you got sense because the Holy Spirit is now your drug. He's now shaping the way you think. And you see drunk people. They bold. They say stuff they would never say when they weren't drunk. They would, they would do all kinds of stuff. I got relatives who say they, they, they only go to parties drunk because they have the courage to dance and, you know, talk to people and all that kind of stuff. It, it, it gives you powers. That's what the Holy Spirit does. God breathes into us like wind instruments to create poetic expressions of praise, worship, and thanksgiving. That's what it says, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I play the saxophone. It's a wind instrument. You blow into it. He's blowing into us, and out of it comes praise, and out of it thanksgiving, and we begin to sing to each other. That that, that famous song that talks about Barak, hallelujah, and, you know, there's a word. It talks about tehillah. And that means to sing, but it's not just some song you come up with. It's a spontaneous song of the Spirit at that very moment. Why? Because the whole, we're under the influence of the Holy Spirit. And you might be right there in your job, right there in your neighborhood, and the last thing that would be appropriate to do is to bust out in praise, but the Holy Spirit is upon you. 
And who knows what had happened? Who knows what had happened? If you read the Old Testament, you'll see Moses, after he defeated the, 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 the Pharaoh, he burst out in song. I was just reading this morning about Deborah in the Bible in the book of Judges, and they defeated the enemy, and they burst out in song. That comes from the grace of God. And let me tell you, friends, God has a song that he's given you to sing. The Holy Spirit wants to fill you. And all that happens when you have a personal encounter with Jesus. This is my appeal to you. I hope you're listening to me. God is calling you to himself. The scripture says, redeem the time. Don't waste time. The days are evil. When you have an opportunity to draw close to Jesus, when you have an opportunity to live right before God, take advantage of it. And God has given you one right now. If you heard this message and it has convicted you, I would like you to repeat after me in this prayer so that you can have a personal encounter with Jesus right where you sit, right where you stand, right where you're listening. Repeat after me. Dear God, I come to you now. And I surrender to Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. I believe that he died on the cross for my sins, shed his blood, he was buried, and then he was resurrected. And after his resurrection, he made it possible for me to live a righteous life. Thank you, God, for saving me. Holy Spirit, fill me now so that I can live holy unto you. In Jesus' name, amen. If you said that prayer for the first time or for the first time and meant it, I want you to type Zoe saved to the number on your screen. What that will allow us to do is to follow up with you. Let me tell you, you're not designed to be a Christian by yourself. We all need Christian friends if we're going to be a Christian. We need Christian community. We want to connect you with some resources, connect you with other people who walk down the walk you walked and that know what it's like to be in your shoes and to help you move along in this, in this journey, as I said, day by day, and if necessary, inch by inch, because God is faithful. I want to thank all of you who joined us this Sunday. It's been a blessing to be with you, and God has great things in store for us, and I will see you next week. God bless you.